Jesus Christ is glorious. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. If you would uh, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. This morning, we are going to uh, examine verses 1 through 7. If you're visiting us today, uh, we're studying this book of Revelation verse by verse, uh, systematically working through the book. What we will uh, do is first pray, then we'll read the passage under consideration, and then uh, we'll go into examine the text more closely uh, verse by verse. So if you would, bow your hearts with me and pray. Well, Father in heaven, we come to this book. We come this morning to see the person of Jesus more clearly. We come, Lord, asking that you would cause us to repent of our failure to illuminate Christ in our lives, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, and in our workplaces, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our zeal for being a faithful witness to what Jesus Christ has done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, as you are able, if you are able, would you please stand for me uh, with me as we read uh, the infallible and errant word of God from Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have persevered at perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. Proverbs 11.30 reads, The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. We're going to see in our passage today, What I'm hoping to unfold to you is that love and faith are two sides of the same coin. Love is faithfulness to doctrinal soundness. Love is faithful through patient endurance. Love is expressed in faithful witness. Love faithfully reflects the light of the one who saved us according to the true nature of his character, that is, sound doctrine. Love faithfully reflects the light of the one who died through patient endurance and tribulation. Love faithfully reflects the character and the nature of the one true king through a public and private declaration of all that he is, all that he has done, and all that he will do. 
Love faithfully declares Jesus is Lord in every aspect of public and private life. Faith is reflecting that you are loved and reflecting light upon the one whom you love. John has been commissioned to write to the churches. He is heralding Christ as the cosmic judge, the great high priest, and the ruler of the church as a result of his victory over death. As we sang in the song, He is worthy. Who is worthy? It was declared in that that chapter, in chapter 5, that the, the worthy one, took the scroll. He didn't, it wasn't, he, he took it like it was his. It belonged to him. He took it. He was worthy to just take it from the hand of Yahweh himself. The, the title deed to the earth belonged to him. He is king. By virtue of his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ is Lord and king. This is a declaration that should cause us uh, joy and cause us fear and cause us all kinds of, uh, of feelings, right? We should be exuberant about this thing. Especially when we understand what he says in, in 1 chapter 5 is that he loved us and he released us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 1 verse 5. We've, we have to remember that, that we are loved, right? And that we then are a reflection of that love as faithful witnesses. So he's been commissioned to write these to the church and, and, uh, Jesus has victory over death and he is the king. He is the Lord. He's the king of kings. And Jesus is ironically installed as king through suffering. And he does so faithfully, even to the point of death on a cross. And the church finds her confidence is that she is grounded in the truth that the overcoming believer the, the faithful witness of Jesus Christ through tribulation will also ironically be a, a kingdom of priests unto their God. That, that they have, that, that all of that too is that He will preserve us all the way to the end. That the one who saved us preserves us all the way to the end. That salvation is all of Christ. It's all of grace. And he takes us all the way to the end. So the first church that we're going to look at as we look at all of these churches individually is probably the one that all of us are most familiar with as we will go through these in the coming weeks. The Lord may may have ordered the letters with Ephesus first because it played a leading role in the beginning of the Christian movement in that Gentile world. Ephesus was the center of Paul's mission. It's the later residence of John, who we know is our partner in tribulation, our partner in kingdom, our partner in perseverance that are in Christ Jesus. So now let us examine verse 1 a little closer. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Throughout the scriptures, we see that it is the will of God that his chosen people, that is, those whom he peculiarly and particularly loved, that they would illuminate his glory to the world, such that through his people, the spiritually blind and those captured and trapped by sin might be set free. Isaiah chapter 42 Looking at verses 6 and 7, 
I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in the darkness from prison. What had happened, this, this command is, goes way back, right? It goes back to Isaiah the prophet saying that this is what the people of Israel were to do. They were to illuminate the glory of God to the world that it might set captives free. But what happened in Israel is that they became insular. That is, they became preoccupied with doctrine and the appearance of piety among themselves that they failed to be the light of the glory of God to the nations. God then entrusted this privilege to those for whom Christ died, the church. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on, a, on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John declares the letter that I am delivering to you is from Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The introduction of Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars says that his omnipresence is, it is in the midst of the church of God. It's amongst his people. And this declares that Jesus and Yahweh are one, that this is the very word of God. This is the one who is speaking to the church. God is speaking to the church. This is what John wants us to know, that Yahweh and Jesus are one and the same, that this Jesus who is declaring this to them is the one who is omnipresent. He is in the midst of the church always. Is that not a comfort that the one who holds the title deed to the earth is in the midst of the church always? The one who is going to preserve us all the way to the end is here right now gathered with his people. That this is a reminder that we ought to hear what the Spirit speaks to the church because it is the very Word of God. It should be also a reminder to the church at Ephesus that their primary role in relation to the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands is that there to be a light, a witness to the outside world. The church's role is to be a beacon of light in a world of darkness. The church is to be a reflection of the glory of God. The church's role is to be a witness to the reality of Yahweh's saving love in Jesus Christ. He who loved the church set the church free from her sins and made the church a kingdom of priests to God and to His Father. In love for the one who loved the church, the church declares, He who is light. We declare like John does in his gospel, we are not that light, but he is the light of men. He is life and the light of men. Now I want to focus in on the first commendation Jesus has for this church. Looking at verse 2 and 3. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. 
and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. You might remember that Paul warned the Ephesian elders of what would take place amongst them. If you remember uh, from Acts chapter 20, looking at verses 28 through 30, this is Paul off the coast. He's brought the elders to him to tell them what is about to take place in the place where they are to serve. Be on guard, he says in verse 28, for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Jesus commends the church for enduring much affliction, for guarding the integrity of the gospel in the church. They've tested the teaching of those who would call themselves brethren, and they've protected the doctrine of the church. In this sense, Jesus commends them as faithful, a church that is doing the master's bidding among the church. A faithful church must do all she can to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must guard against false teaching and false teachers. It's hard work. That is, that is hard work of the church because false teachers are hard to detect. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 11 says about detecting these false teachers, looking at verses 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if uh, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. The Ephesian church's brothers, partners in kingdom and tribulation and the perseverance in Christ Jesus, our, her- our human author says, that the church, uh, the false teachers, they will be understood by their behavior. You will examine them by their behavior. False teachers are hard to detect. But he tells them in 1 John, examine their behavior. 1 John, uh, looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. Jesus commends this church. He says, church, you are doing well internally. Internally, you're doing well. You have not grown weary in defense of the gospel amongst yourselves. But in verse verse 4, he's going to say the light, in essence, is growing dim. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Although the Ephesian church was steadfastly guarding the integrity of the gospel in the church, Jesus says the church 
has left its first love. I was reminded when I was studying this, thinking about how, how is it that, that we can lose that sense of our first love? How can we lose, how does zeal get lost for our, our public witness? And I think it's because we forget just how tremendously we are loved. We forget all of the things that Christ has given to us. We forget what we have. We forget what we've become. It's pretty easy to forget when you've become, when the world says that you guys are all bigots and that you're narrow-minded and that, that you, you have to lean on some sort of crutch and that you're, you're, you're somehow weird and different than the world. Well, yeah, you are. You're weird. But you're weirdly loved. It's an amazing thing. And, I, and I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Paul's letter to the Ephesians 35 years earlier. Paul had written this letter to the church and he was declaring what the love of Christ had accomplished in them. He says, in Christ, because he loved you, he's freed you from your sin by his blood and he's given you every spiritual blessing. You were chosen in him. You are blameless before him. You were adopted in love. You have redemption through his blood. You have forgiveness in him. He's made known to you the mystery of his will. You have been given an inheritance. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because He loved you, you're guaranteed to take possession of it. Guaranteed to take possession of it. Looking at Ephesians 3, I want to look at verses 16 through 18. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all with the fullness of God." See, some commentators argue that this, that this passage in Revelation uh, is primarily about the fact that, that this church had lost its love for one another. And some even argue uh, that their love for Christ himself had somehow been lost. It's not merely that. It, it is that their zealous, zealousness for doctrinal integrity had, had caused them to become insular. That is, that they no longer expressed the zeal outwardly that they once had for witnessing to the world the love of Jesus. So as many of you know, Heather and I were in California last weekend at, at, at Jesse Wildman's wedding. And there was something that struck me about the wedding that reminded me of this zealousness for being a witness to Christ's love. And it was after the ceremony was over, there, there were toasts from the best man and from the maid of honor. And it struck me that both of these stories that they told about one another was the same. When the best man spoke, he spoke of not knowing Bryn. He said, I didn't know her. But one day, Jesse came over and he described to me all these fantastic qualities that this woman had. And he couldn't stop talking 
about how wonderful Bryn was. Then the bridesmaid tells the story of Bryn coming to her to declare that she had met the person whom God intended for her and describe to her the tremendous character of this man that she wanted to marry. So what they did, in essence, is that they gossiped about the one they loved. They gossiped love. This person is this, and I gossip about him. This person is that, I gossip about her. And do you remember when, when you first received the love of Christ in yourself? I remember I was absolutely excited. I ran around to, everybody must know this. They must know him. I need to tell them about him. But I'm afraid that even in myself, over time, my zeal often fades. That sometimes the light of the one who called me out of darkness, I put a shade over that light. That at times my light becomes dim. I want us to be a church who gossips the gospel in the coffee shop. That we gospel the, we, we gossip the good news of who Jesus is and how much we are loved in the grocery store and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our schools. We must remember this, that you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The mission of that was given once to Israel to be a light unto the nations has been given to the church of Jesus Christ. And we are to be as a reminder of what Isaiah wrote in chapter 42. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. This is the mission. This is the mission of the church. All of these things, though, work together. We must be commended, as they are, for protecting the gospel. Right? We must protect sound doctrine in the church. But we ought not to be so concerned with that that the light of the gospel gets dimmed because we've become so insular that we can't see outside of ourselves and realize that no, the mission is not... Yes, be true to the gospel for sure. Be true to doctrine. Know it. Learn it. Be uh, dogmatic about it amongst each other. Keep the false teachers away from us. That's the only way we can do it, is we have to know what the truth says. We have to know what the gospel is. We have to be clear about that. If we are clear about that, that is our war against the falsehoods from coming in. But at the same time, we can't be just mired in that such that our light goes dim, that it never goes out beyond the doors. And Jesus 
gives this mission to us, to the church. This is our mission. Verse 5, Therefore remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus warns the church that becomes so insular that the light of the gospel gets diminished outside that we have lost our purpose. In essence, he's saying you've lost the purpose. You missed the point. You've missed the point. And if you're not going to live according to the purpose that I have given you, and that is to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring about the salvation of my people, then I'll just snuff that light out. Whatever light you had, whatever light you once had, if you will not repent, I'll just snuff it out completely. Because in fact, you've become kind of worthless. You've become really worthless because you've missed the mission. You've missed the mission. is to reflect the glory of God in a very dark world. That's our mission. To reflect the light of the gospel in a, in a, in a world that so desperately needs light. Verse 6 it gives them another commendation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the church here is commended for its dealings with the Nicolaitans. The city of Ephesus, as a reminder, was dominated by pagan temples. And the city's prosperous economy was tied to trade that was associated with temple worship. And the Nicolaitans tried to convince the Ephesian church that some compromise was necessary. That uh, we kind of need to encourage a little bit of syncretism in the church. And by that mean meaning... Compromise a little, allow some of the world to come into the church for the sake of commerce, for the sake of, of uh, being part of this community. And so they kind of blend paganism, and in this case, with church doctrine and traditions. There's kind of this encouragement to blend these things. The church is commended here a second time for having withstood that desire to not compromise. They're not compromising by being, uh, by, by compromising the gospel. So they're not softening doctrine, right? Amongst themselves. They're not also embracing world systems into their church. These are, these are good things that the church needs to be faithful about for sure. And he, and Jesus commends them for both of those things. And yet, as we saw in verse four, I have this against you. You've left your first love. This, this is all insular. This is all internal. There's supposed to be this reflection of light to the world, right? So all of these things are good, but they all three need to be together, right? The church needs to do all three of those things. We need to guard the gospel faithfully, know what the gospel is, right? So that we can protect ourselves from false teachers. But we also need to guard against uh, the desire to sort of slip into worldliness. And at the same time, we need to be a reflection of the glory of God outside of the church, outside of our gathering. We need to be on mission. And that mission is really simple, isn't it? Like, think about it. It's not hard work for you to tell about the person who loved you. 
Is it hard work to say I'm loved? Like, I could go on for a long time about how much my wife loves me to anybody. I could tell of all the wonderful things that she does that shows me that she loves me. Like one great thing is when I get out of the shower and she knows I'm in there and all of a sudden I don't have a towel. I say, Heather, I need a towel. Wait a minute. I have it in the dryer. I want you to have a hot one. She brings me a hot, what? You know, there's a no greater feeling of getting out of the shower and you've got this extremely warm towel, right? I'm like, I am loved, right? Because I just know that's not my nature is to think of that sort of thing for her. I, it's not, but it's her nature to think of that for me. I know I'm loved. Well, and we could think about all the things that Jesus has done and made us and just gossip that to the world. I'm loved. I'm unworthy of love. I'll tell you all the things that I did, but Jesus Christ died for me. He loves me. And he wants you to know that love too, right? So then we see that there's a blessing for those who hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The conclusion of the letter includes the exhortation that will be repeated to every church in our study. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus should be heeded by the church at Spring Hill. What the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus and to Spring Hill is to be heeded by individual Christians in every church and in every time and in every place. We began our study a few weeks ago with a question posed by Jesus in Luke 18.6. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith? When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith? I think more aptly said, will he find faithfulness? Will he find us faithful servants? Will he find faith? Because you can claim a faith that doesn't do, that doesn't work. You can claim, I believe in Jesus, but there's no real evidence of that faith being worked out. So I think the question is, when the Son of Man returns, will He find us faithful? And you might uh, recall that when we were looking at Matthew chapter 24, that we looked at this study in Matthew uh, 24, verse 45 and 46, posed this question. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And we concluded that faithfulness, faithfulness to the master looks like the church and the Christian doing the master's bidding until he returns. We also concluded that the time is near and that his re return is sudden. It'll be on a day and in an hour when we don't expect it. It'll be on a day and an hour when we don't expect it. 
But to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This conclusion serves as a reminder that the Christian experience uh, experiences challenges. We will experience challenges and tribulation, things that are aimed to undermine our faithfulness. Things that, that, that will get in the way of faithfulness. We understand that overcoming, there's this reminder that we must overcome these temptations, these things that draw us out away from faithfulness, while we simultaneously, at the same time, we experience rule and reign as Christ's vice regents on earth. And we do so with the confidence that Christ himself will preserve us all the way to the end such that we will be uh, those who overcome tribulation, we will overcome challenges to faithfulness because He is preserving us. And it will be granted to the faithful to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Who will overcome? That's the answer. That's, the, that's another question that will be posed to us later in chapter 12. Who will overcome? We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb And the word of our testimony, that is, declaring the light of the gospel, we will overcome as we declare the light of the gospel, that we declare Jesus as king. And we will overcome by the blood of the lamb, that that blood preserves us forever, that he will take us all the way. As we know, doctrinal compromise is a challenge in the church, right? It's a challenge to the church today, just as it was then. Spring, Spring Hill Church, if we want to be found faithful, we must guard the gospel of grace. There are challenges that we face to soften the message according to the culture, to incorporate uh, cultural norms into our practice. We must stand against the tendency to drift. When we drift, what do we do? When we incorporate the ways of the world into the ways of the church, and we come in to worship Him in a way that He has not prescribed, it is that we bring strange fire before the Lord. And you know how that worked out. It didn't work out so well. But we also must be on guard from becoming insular and closed off. We must remember that Christ died to save sinners. We've got to remember the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is that Christ died to save sinners. We have this light and we must declare Him as the light. We must reflect Him. We must remember that He loved us and that He set us free from our sin. We must never forget the purpose of the church. We must reflect the glorious gospel to the world. Love faithfully reflects the character and the nature of the one true King through public and private declaration of all that He is, all that He's done, and all that He will do. Love faithfully declares Jesus is Lord in every aspect of public and private life. Faith is reflecting that you are loved and reflecting light upon those whom you love. Let us be a church that gossips the scandalous love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And remember the wisdom from the Proverbs, the fruit of righteous. Uh, of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. 
Whenever you found a wise and faithful servant, protect the gospel, protect the integrity of the gospel. Don't compromise with the world and be a soul winner.